Welcome to The Sober Effect, a show that looks at the positives of sobriety, the dangers of alcohol and the many people who are affected by it. I'm Kate. And I'm Steph. The ripple effect of alcohol is far-reaching, and those are the stories you'll hear on The Sober Effect. episode three uh this one was a good one kate uh we had renee who is an icu nurse so she deals with people that are in final stages of of their alcoholism but also she has some personal experience with addiction um she lost her daughter to addiction you know renee's mission since her daughter passed away is to help people like educate people on addiction because she sees that as the biggest problem um when she's dealing with people in active addiction and and then the family fallout it's really interesting isn't it because when i was drinking the only effects i thought about were embarrassing myself hurting myself and then the hangover and i didn't get awful hangovers but actually just because i wasn't in bed with an awful headache what I've now realized is that it was continuous. My hangovers were affecting my whole day because I was drinking most evenings. It was just a continuous low mood. My energy was low. My sleep wasn't great. I was snappier, all of those things. And if I'm honest, I never really thought about the implications to my liver, to my brain, to my heart, to my physical appearance. I just didn't give it much thought because I thought well I'm not drinking all day um is this really going to affect me it's just so wrong isn't it the stories that she was telling us um about the people who come in it's heartbreaking and terrifying in equal measures it really is and I, I agree with that because it starts to become your new norm like feeling that way you, because you feel that way over and over and over again, you just start accepting it because your yep. addiction to the alcohol is is so prominent and and you use that to kind of mask those feelings. And it's just this cycle, right? Of just feeling a yeah. little off. But then as soon as you get that drink, those feelings go away until and it's just that merry-go-round effect. Okay. So one thing that I found interesting in preparing for our chat with Renee, um, just in the United States. One in four patients in the ICU have an alcohol-related issue. So that could be, you know, final stages of like cirrhosis of the liver, um, but then also trauma. So automobile accidents or falls or, you know, anything like that. Alcohol is responsible for more than 60 medical conditions, mouth, throat, stomach, liver, breast cancers, high blood pressure, cirrhosis of the liver, heart disease and that that is the physical you've also got the mental health problems you know I mean as we've spoken about in previous episodes a lot of people use alcohol to manage anxiety and depression but actually excessive drinking is literally just going to make those symptoms worse they kind of go hand in hand they make you want more you have more and it makes them worse um it's just a merry-go-round and you've got to jump off you're going to scrape your knees when you're doing it, but it is essential that you can jump off because hangovers are nothing compared to the damage you are doing to yourself. She speaks a bit about the kind of mental health problems, but, you know, the withdrawal 
from alcohol. You can get seizures, you can get delirium, confusion, hallucination, tremors. Now, if that's what happens to you when you stop taking this, imagine what's happening to you when you are. That's serious stuff, isn't it? That's that's really is scary. And, and I thought that this was so far beyond anything I was doing because I was just a mum in suburbia drinking wine at night at home. But actually, you can, all of these things, you can get them, even drinking at the level that I was. Well, I say even, you know, a bottle of wine a night isn't even, is it? That That's lots. The longer I'm sober, the more I realise the damage it was doing to me. And the mental damage is something I never factored into it. And it's only now that I realise the clarity in which I live my life that I can see how blurry everything was before that. Yeah, I agree. You know, honestly, I always say I wasn't physically addicted to the alcohol. Like I wasn't someone where... I mean, obviously when I quit, I didn't go into any kind of withdrawal or had to go have any medical help on, on getting off alcohol, but who's to say it wasn't leading to that. Who's to say that I wasn't going to end up that way if I didn't quit when I did, but I can say that I was addicted to it mentally, that I was using it for my anxiety and it, it was the completely wrong way to medicate my anxiety. Like you said, it was this merry-go-round where actually the alcohol is what was causing the mental health issue of anxiety. But because I started at such a young age and used it as a crutch for so long, I was addicted. I was blind to it. I defended it because I thought that's the only thing that was going to help me. And like you said, it isn't until you completely remove yourself and give your body the time it needs to completely eliminate the effects of alcohol from your system, which can take, it's different for everybody. I think it took at least 60 days for me to stop having anxiety. That's a really long time, but yeah. it's also why I never want to go back because I don't want to go through that again. It is awful to feel that way. My autoimmune disease was not being helped at all with alcohol. And I never took the time to give it a break to see if it would help. And now once again, my symptoms from my autoimmune disease are not even a thing anymore. And I suffered for years, for probably five or six years, trying to figure out how to manage those symptoms. And all I really needed to do was quit drinking, but I just, I didn't want to accept that. You know, I never ate sweet stuff ever. And, and I would go to dinner parties and not have pudding because I just thought I really, it makes me feel ill the thought of eating sweet stuff but you know I, I've been looking online and getting some information and one pint of this certain cider has 48 grams of sugar in it and your daily recommendation is 30. One pint of cider puts you over the whole daily recommendation and since I stopped drinking I have become a bit of a sugar addict. I am craving chocolate, craving sweet stuff. I went around thinking, I don't like sugar. I don't Me too. Eat sweet you know what? I was consuming so much sugar and there are 600 calories plus in a bottle of wine. You know, it's, it's thousands of calories a week that I was drinking. So my body was addicted to sugar and I was going around saying, I don't eat sugar. I eat lots of vegetables and I don't eat sweet things. I mean, I got it so wrong. You know, I would eat a whole bag of Haribo or a family-sized bar of chocolate. Now, at the beginning, I was thinking, well, that's fine because 
anything to stay sober but now I'm you know over a year and I'm still craving sugar so I'm really having to cut back but these are all negative impacts on your body on your physical body um and some of the stories that Renee talks about are so sad because she only deals with people that are very far down the line obviously to get into the intensive care unit at a hospital you've got to be quite ill already it's heartbreaking to see because as as we hear you know even when you decide to turn your life around when it gets to that point you cannot reverse the damage you have done to your body and your brain and it's in so many things in life you know we we buy these creams for our faces we eat green leafy vegetables to try and keep ourselves as young and healthy as possible but alcohol is poison and I was putting that into my body every day and it was damaging so many aspects of my mental and physical health and and I just didn't realize it and that that's scary and that's why education is so important isn't it it is it is and that's what I love about Renee is with her experiences in the ICU and then like I said her personal experience with her daughter's addiction you know, she has decided to use that to fuel her desire to help educate people. You know, she helps try to educate families and, you know, patients that come in that are really far into addiction. And then outside of that, she puts together a rally every year that is all around sharing stories and helping people understand, like, if I knew this, things would have been different for my daughter or, you know, you're not alone in this. You can, you can overcome it and tell stories of inspiration of people who've overcome it, but then also, yeah, remind people of the stories of the people who couldn't overcome it and the effect it had on everyone around them, because that's something as someone who was addicted to a substance, you really aren't thinking about that. You aren't thinking about the effect it's having on everyone around you. And it goes far. It does. It does, Steph. It goes through generations. Mm-hmm. Um, and her story, as we will hear, is heartbreaking. I mean, we both had tears welling up in our eyes while we were having this discussion. She is an amazing woman and, um, and she's doing an incredible thing. And she has had to deal with so much heartbreak. Um, it's a real eye opener, isn't it, as to the evil that addiction is, and it is relentless. It does not stop. It will take lives and move on to the next. Let's meet Renee. I work in a local hospital here in my town, and uh, we do see a lot of people that have the effects of alcohol, such as cirrhosis of the liver and that kind of thing. So we see kind of the end stages of alcoholism, people with heart disease. We get a lot of altered mental status patients that come in, you know, and especially once they start detox and we can see a lot of those effects where they just get kind of altered. They don't know where they're at, what they're doing. It's it's pretty bad. And, and cirrhosis in general, that's a painful way to go. Do most of the people who come in understand why they're in that situation I mean no one's ever really explained it to me it's always been sold as a fun thing to do and people say do it responsibly but actually no one ever said this is really dangerous no one ever showed me what what could happen to me I think that um a lot of times people just think that's just the way life is 
Um, and by the time they get to that stage, the effects of it are, are already so far gone that even if they did stop drinking, um, they wouldn't be able to stop the disease process. It, it's really just a matter of time. What yeah. typically is the survival rate when they get to that point where they're actually put into intensive care? What do you see as the, the percentage there? I can't really say percentage wise. We're able to send some people home um, and they do, you know, survive months. Um, and sometimes we just have to send them home on hospice care. A lot of times we get repeat, you know, patients that'll come in, we'll patch them up, send them back home. And then a few months later, they're back again. They don't stop drinking. They have family members that enable them, uh, you know, taking care of them and that kind of thing. Um, and it's probably been that way for a long time. So that's the only thing they know. Yeah. And that what I would feel would for you as, as a healthcare provider for them, frustrating is, am I correct in saying that word frustrating yes. to see people yes. in this condition come back? Yes. Yes. Because, you know, we try to um, teach them, we try to educate them, talk to their families, but, um, this is just the way of life, you know, their, their family members before them drink. And then this is, you know, it's just part of our custom, part of our culture. And it's just what people do. You know, and I don't think a lot of people understand the addiction side of it because some people can socially drink. Of course, you guys have talked about that, but um, a lot of times people can't and, and those people just get caught up in addiction. And I don't even know that they realize that it's a cycle and that they're going to just keep passing that on and on unless somebody stops it. Um, we try to get them resources that they need, but ultimately it's up to them. You must have some people who sort of say, I had no idea, and they go away and they do register all of that information and they do make big lifestyle changes. Unfortunately, if that happens, um, we don't see that part. We hope that we can do something to help change them. And then we do have a health unit also in our, our hospital. So some a lot of times they'll go from us to the behavioral health unit so they can hopefully get more help there. You mentioned mental health as well, and that's that's an interesting one because I, I have had to take real care of myself. And for the first yeah. sort of six months, I didn't really leave. I didn't go out very, very much at all socially. And I had an amazing support network around me. But yes. is there a lot of support for people who clearly want to change their ways? They want to stop drinking, but they're sort of lost. That's how I certainly felt. You know, I mean, we have resources here, but... Um, a lot of times they'll have to leave, but they'll have to go to other cities or another state or, you know, but people can't afford it. You know, I mean, to get real long-term help, that's going to cost and people just, it, it's high, it's costly. I know we've, we've come across that in my own life that, um, you know, what do you do? I don't have $30,000 to send you to a rehab or that you need to be in. It makes me so sad. I, I know that you've had your own personal experience, haven't you, with a child who's had an addiction and I don't know a lot about that do you want to tell us a bit about that sure um my daughter Sarah um passed away on March 29th 2018 from a drug overdose um we had she had suffered I mean many many years of addiction and um you know it started out um when she was a teenager just recreationally you know, kids just do things, but just quickly 
uh, got out of control. Um, she did have some trauma in her youth that, of course, I didn't know about. Well, not her youth, but when she was younger, I didn't know about until she was, you know, in, into her 20s because she never would. She never said anything. But I always knew that she was that something was amiss, that something was not right with her. And I tried to get her help and I tried to get her counseling and things, but she wouldn't participate in those kind of things. And so, yeah, she started out just dabbling with marijuana, um, ecstasy. Um, and then as she got older, things just kind of intensified. She did have three children. Now, in her early 20s, she was also diagnosed with bipolar and depression. So she did have some mental illness before being diagnosed. Uh, a lot of self-medication, you know, self-medicating was going on. And, um, you know, what I realize now <clears throat> is that we were all in such a cycle, you know, that I was always in uh, protective mode, survival mode, uh, trying to make sure that she was okay. Um, and unfortunately in so doing and not being educated myself, didn't know anything about addiction. Um, I just enabled her and, um, you know, that it didn't help her. Um, ultimately, you know, she, she would have needed um, early, early intervention. And I, I, had I been more educated on addiction and the effects of addiction and that sort of thing, uh, maybe things could have been differently. Ultimately, it was fentanyl that killed her. She was forced to go into treatment. So she was in treatment for about five or six months, maybe she came home. She was in a drug court program here in town. And five months after her being home, she relapsed. And unfortunately, what she what she was sold was uh, nothing but fentanyl. You know, she was uh, addicted to heroin at that point. Um, but for five months, she was home with us. Um, and we got to kind of reconnect with her and not not the addicted her. We don't know what we're dealing with. We don't understand. It seems to have exploded. And as you said, we want to support our children. We want to educate them, but we're not educated. Right. Where to, go to find that information? People like you and I, Steph, speaking out. Um, my, my friend and I got together after my daughter passed away and, and we just realized, hey, you know, nobody's talking about any of this so we need we need to do something and we started a rally so once a year we do we put a rally on here locally uh, we we share stories um of people who have passed we also have people who are in recovery we have people give their testimonies we have educational material uh, trying to get education out there you know doing what we can because you know uh, looking back I, I don't want my daughter's life and death to have been in vain. And so we're just trying in our little, you know, part of the world to bring yeah. education to our community. And hopefully, you know, that'll spark more in more conversations in homes. And I know right now we're getting ready to meet with um, a local agency to try to get some education in the school systems here you know, about addiction. I mean, it, whether it's drugs or alcohol, I mean, you know, these kids are the one who are taking the brunt of it. And, and we have a generation of kids losing their parents. And we just, if we can reach them at the younger age and let them understand what addiction is, you know, I talk to my grandkids all the time and, you know, we're really honest with them and we have real conversations with them about what addiction is. You know, I'm, I'm praying that they do understand that they've 
they say they do. Um, but, you know, you just pray that you're educating them enough. Unfortunately, it wasn't until Sarah passed away that I really started seeing how much I didn't know, you know, and how things, you know, could have gone differently, perhaps. I don't know. But um, just the lack of education was just so unfortunate. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I, the point, too, of drugs and alcohol, I've always had an issue with that because it makes alcohol not seem as bad, not in the same category. And when you talk about doing your own research, that is something that I have learned since getting sober is that alcohol is a drug and society has always separated the two so that alcohol doesn't seem as bad. And I think that's another thing that our kids need to learn. I never touched drugs, marijuana every once in a while, but I never tried cocaine or LSD or any of those things. And people around me were doing it, but because I'm like, well, that's a drug that's addictive. That's, that's bad for you because that's what was getting pounded into my brain as a young child, but no one put alcohol in that same category. Oh yeah. It's very socially acceptable Mm -hmm. to drink. I mean, it's advertised with every major sporting event. At a wedding, you talk about what, how can we afford the most expensive possible champagne? It's a liquid drug. You're you're asking with how to put the most expensive liquid drug on your guest's table. That's how I see it now. It's sad because addiction, no matter what kind, it is going to be an all-consuming issue in in the person's life, and it's ultimately going to just destroy their lives. You know, and that's what is so sad. I'll share my story with some of these people and say, look, I know what addiction is. I know because I've seen it destroy my daughter. I saw I have lived through it. It destroyed her life. It took her life. But you're still here and you have a chance and there is help and people do recover. And, you know, your life is worth it. I try to encourage them, you know, explain to them how much their kids need them, you know, it doesn't matter what what you've done. If you have a child, that child wants you. You know, they don't want anybody else. And that was the case with us. You know, my, my grandchildren, they didn't want to live with me. They wanted their parents. And it's, it's, it's heartbreaking to see. And so that's really the cycle that I'm praying we can break in, in, in this younger generation to see them say, we don't want to go that way. You know, we want something different. I'm, I'm sort of a bit obsessed with, with, with the education part of alcohol. I mean, I would love to set something up where people go into schools and they talk about it. I am very candid with my kids. I tell them the effects that alcohol can have on a person. Now they've seen me drunk. They know that those effects but there's right. so many more. It's not just about being drunk in the evening when you've had too much to drink. It it actually eats you up inside. A lot of people think the worst that will happen is the hangover and getting through that. So they eat a burger, they eat some grease and some fat and some, yes. they don't realize that even that is them damaging their bodies, the dehydration. I mean, yes. those those are the kind of things that I just think people are so unaware of and when they get to the point of coming into for example the ICU are people surprised at at 
the effect it's had on their bodies because they haven't been able to see it? Or do you no. think they, they sort of knew it was coming? I think they just, you know how you just live with something and you just kind of get used to it? You know, and like I said, I think they just, they're used to being sick. They're used to being, um, you know, uncomfortable, miserable, whatever it is. I think people just get used to it. And and like I said, they just have the mindset, well, you know, this is my life. This is the way I do it. And patch me up, fix me so I can go back home and start it all over again. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I, people also need to understand that um, addiction is a disease. It's not a choice. And so if you understand and you come at it with the with the attitude, okay, this is a disease. And I tell people too, when I talk to them, I said, if you had cancer, would you get it treated? Well, yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, you have you have addiction. You have an, a disease of addiction that needs to be treated. Well, I'm gonna go home and you know my, my family supports me. I said, no, that's not how that works. You know, you have to you have to get it treated. You have to stop your life. You have to take that a, a portion of your life out of your everyday living, and you have to dedicate a, a, however long it takes to you understanding what your disease is, what is it doing to your body, how does it affect you in your life, and how you can conquer it or you can get into recovery and live a, a sober life. And I think if you can give somebody hope. You just never know where that can go. And so, and I think my daughter, for one, she all, she didn't have the mindset that maybe I can get free from this because she said not, not long before she passed away, she said, you know, mom, maybe I'm always going to be like this, you know, and I try to say, no, baby, don't have, it doesn't have to be that way. But until somebody really grasped the fact that I'm going to die and I don't want to die. And there are other things that I can do to get help um, until they get that realization. Unfortunately, the, the cycle will just continue. Yeah. It's having that fight in you, right. And believing that you can overcome it and fight. Right. And not, yeah. like you said, just feeling like, well, this, I'm just doomed. I'm stuck to always feeling yeah. this way and being that way. And it's a really hard place to get to, but it yeah. starts with once again, educating, but then also letting people know it's okay to ask for help. And I think right. that's another, a whole nother thing that's really hard for people, but that's the stigma is people just, they don't want to become a burden. They want to just, oh, I'm just going to try to do it on my own. And yes, right. it's heartbreaking because they do, they need more than just, you know, self-preservance like if it's a disease you're not going to just be able to just overcome it on your own you've got to right, get the right right yeah so alcohol's in there depressing you telling you you're not worth it right yeah. so even if you have the confidence and you go do you know what I can do this you drink a bottle of wine and you're suddenly out of control and your mind saying you are awful you cannot do this yeah. alcohol does that to you so yeah it's really difficult even with all the will in the world even when you know you know I got hit by a car once when I was so drunk that I ended up in the emergency room mm. and the doctor said you should have broken everything but you were so drunk you were floppy I wow. recovered and carried on drinking yeah now I look back at that 
And I think, what, how, I, I don't get it. How can that happen to someone? And yet you're still drinking a week later. And it's because it's so addictive. It, it's tempting. You think, oh, I'll be able to handle it. I want it. I need it. And for me, that's why it needs to be a cut. Take that Band-Aid yeah. off. Stop everything. There's no moderating. Get it out of your life. There is nothing good about alcohol. It's a coping mechanism for a lot of people. Um, it's an escape, you know, and that's what, that's where it kind of starts. I think you got to learn how to cope with your life. You have to get some more coping mechanisms. And, and unfortunately, especially when you, when you become an alcoholic or an addict at a young age, you absolutely have no coping skills whatsoever. So anytime anything comes along in your life, that's um, uncomfortable or hard to deal with, or makes you upset or, you know, the first thing well, let me go and just numb all this and escape so I don't really have to deal with it. But it just, meanwhile, it's growing into this big monster in the background of your life. And and, and it, that's going to come and get you. And then, you know, it's just a, it's just a horrible cycle. That's, that's a really interesting point, isn't it, Steph? You're, yeah. you're too young. You haven't gone through enough of life sober to build those skills. So of right. course, then, you know, that's why a lot of people say when they stop drinking, they feel like they've reverted to their old teenage self before they started. And, and that makes so much sense to me because yeah. we're going back and we're starting from there to learn things that we really never have. Because I certainly used alcohol to escape my brain without yeah. a doubt. That's why I drank. And I'm having to learn that my brain is absolutely fine as it is. Thanks. And I need to go out and swim or walk or talk to people right. or write. Find other ways because alcohol was just pushing me down this deep hole further and further. And, and you just need, it's like a fight. You've got to fight to get away from it. Yes. Let me ask you, you this question. When, when you finally did get sober, did you find that you had to kind of relearn how to cope with things? Because I've seen that in, in people's lives who've, um, become sober and now they have to learn how to be a parent like wait a minute I don't even know how to be you know they have to learn how to be a parent they have to learn how to cope with people in the in the in their workplace or you know they have to learn how to deal with people and handle situations whereas before they just didn't so yeah, yeah you know. I would say for for me I drank I started drinking at 14 and I never learned how to process feelings and I always yes. would drink to avoid feeling anything bad and anything that happened in those teenage years, all the way up to 14 months ago, that's what I did. And I had horrible anxiety from it because as we know, if we don't process things correctly, it becomes anxiety in the body. It doesn't go away. It just turns into horrible anxiety attacks and things like that. So for me, it was, it was learning how to actually sit and let myself cry and grieve things properly. Yeah. I mean, I'm grieving things from years ago that I never yeah. cried about, that I should have cried about and releasing it. And that's the thing. I thought I was making myself a strong, a strong person because I could drink and it would numb all of that out. And I didn't have to deal with it. And I could, you know, present yeah. that, like, I've got it together. And in the background, it was just becoming a complete mess. And I was yeah. anxious all the time. So there's a lot to that. Yeah. It's always like 
that board game, Snakes and Ladders. Do you know that game over there? Shoots and Ladders. and Ladders, yeah. You call it Snakes and Ladders, do you? Shoots. Shoots and Ladders. So it's like oh, okay. slides. Yeah, oh, yeah. We, we call, we have snakes. That's weird. Um, yeah. But it's almost like you're trying to get to the end, which is a learning point, which is a coping mechanism, which is a skill. But you take the easy route and you keep going back. And actually, until you go, I'm not going to get on that slide or that snake or that shoot. I'm going to keep going and it's going to be hard. But then you start to grow. You start to learn. But it's so tempting to jump on that slide to take you back somewhere that's comfortable, even though, you know, it's the beginning again. It's down at the bottom. And it, it really is like that, isn't it? You kind of it takes strength, it takes support, it takes knowledge, it takes all of these things. If you've come from a family of alcoholics, then you have to be more proactive in your own life to say, I'm not going to I'm not going to just dabble in that. I'm not going to play around with that. You know, there are a lot of broken, broken parts behind addiction that that doesn't, that are not just in the addict's life, but in the lives of the people who love them and who really need them. So, you know, if if we can get people to understand that too, could be a big motivating factor for them. It's so profound, really, to hear her talk about the ripple effect, which is obviously what we're here to discuss when it comes to the sober effect and the podcast. But it's so profound because she sees it firsthand. She sees the end game of addiction every day in the ICU and the families and her and then personally her grandchildren who, like she says, they wanted their parents. They didn't want to live with her, you know, and that's heartbreaking. And then now her role is to parent them and educate them about addiction. Because as she said, it's generational. Her biggest fear is that it's going to just roll into them. It's so inspiring though, for her to step up and not only help her family, which we all would do, but then to share all of that and try to help all these other families that she sees coming through. Yeah. And I mean, and seeing people who come in and she said, you know, they're, they're being enabled to carry on. So they leave and they come back because they've carried on drinking. Even people who might have had a chance of survival if they'd stopped, but they're back in again. And that's hard to see when not only because they're human beings and, and for someone to die because of something that they're drinking or taking, but also because she's firsthand experienced it and she understands the ripple effect. She understands all of the people that are going to be left behind. It scared me a bit when she was talking about being an enabler. It's scary because she's right. It's a lack of education. Now she loved her daughter and she would have done anything for her. But as she said, I, I was uneducated. I didn't understand how to deal with someone with this problem. Now, I wouldn't either, because you go in there and you think, if I just give all the support, tell them I love them, surely that's enough. That's how I would think. But it's not, and it's heartbreaking to think that all of the kind of the, with the best will in the world, if you don't have the tools 
you're not going to be able to to do anything and, and the fact that you've got to pay kind of thirty thousand dollars for rehab and people just can't afford that again that just feels criminal to me it you need to be able to access help and the only way a lot of people can get help is through talking to people like Renee finding online communities you know listening to podcasts reading books because the actual professional help out there is expensive and it's so unfair that you have to be rich in order to access it and that has to change it just can't go on like this. There needs to be more of a of a racket made about what is happening and how to deal with it. And not just for the people taking it, to the people that are there watching it happen who feel completely hopeless about supporting the people they love. That's why it is so important for us to have these conversations and for Renee to do like what she does with her rally. It is a way that we can give back to this community, no charge, and obviously we're not professionals. We cannot take someone through a recovery process, but we can at least make this something to not be ashamed of, make it something that it's okay to ask for help. Because I think, like I mentioned in our conversation with Renee, that's one of the biggest things. A lot of people that are in active addiction, they don't want to become a burden. I found it quite interesting what you were saying, Steph, about drugs and alcohol. And again, I've always in my head said oh I don't do drugs I drink so I'm not taking the hard stuff and that is just rubbish isn't it long term you're drip feeding it into your body it's almost like a slow suicide it really is and it's you're deteriorating physically and mentally deteriorating every time you have a drink and that is how I see it now you know and I know there are people out there who can moderate and they're, they're not going to have any ailments. They're not going to struggle with depression because of drinking. And I'm not saying it, it's, it's like that for everyone. But for me, now that I look back at myself, every night that I sat there drinking, that's what I was doing. I was getting worse and worse very slowly in front of my own eyes. And I was doing that to myself. Um, and I was convincing myself it wasn't happening because I enjoyed the feeling. And now that I'm not doing it, you know, the health benefits. I mean, so many people that I see say, what oh, what have you done? You look so much better. It's not just on the inside, it's on the outside. The evidence is literally staring you in the face. But no one tells you that drinking, binge drinking on the weekends or like you having a bottle of wine every night is going to eventually lead to heart problems, um, cancers. No one is educating on that. And I think it's kind of goes along with the smoking. Like it took forever with the smoking because these type of health issues are things that gradually creep up on you. So when you're in the moment, you have that mindset of, oh, this, I'll, I'll quit eventually. I'll be fine. Like you think you've got control of it and you don't, you don't. It's by the time it's too late, it's too late. And I think that's what Renee sees in the ICU. These people they know that it's not, they know that it's not good. They know something's off, but they just can't, they can't shake it loose anymore. It's, they're just too addicted. But it's, it's also, there are loads of events where people are fundraising for things like breast cancer and they, at the end, they have a glass of drinking. What is that about? Until getting sober, I have never heard the narrative that alcohol can cause breast cancer or it can raise your chances of getting breast cancer. I swear to you, never 
did I hear that narrative until I got sober and was in the sober community and researching and doing all those things. That that scares me. That scares me that that is not a conversation that our kids are hearing before they get hooked. I mean, it's just, it's not okay. Sobriety is like the best kept secret. Nobody wants to know. It's just wonderful. And, and to know that my risk of these health problems mental and physical are lessened because of this. It's so empowering to know that you can give up something and improve your chances of just having a wonderful life. I think our time's up, Steph. Yeah. I will see you soon. Cheers, Steph. Bye, Kate. Thank you for listening. We really hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, we're just two women from opposite sides of the pond wanting to bring awareness around the negative effects of alcohol. We are not licensed therapists or doctors. If alcohol is causing any mental or physical health issues, please seek professional help. Please be sure to give us a follow so you don't miss future episodes. If you think our podcast could help someone you know, please be sure to share it. Also, leaving a five-star review will help The Sober Effect reach more people like you. The music for this show was produced and recorded by Pearl and Thumbelina Jim of the wonderful Charm Jar Music. More information can be found in our show notes.